Well, we are continuing in our study in the book of John. Good morning to you. My name is Darren. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Excited that you're here. Excited that you're watching online. And uh, we're working through the book of John sort of verse by verse. And in fact, we're journaling through that together. So if this is your first Sunday with us or if you're, uh, if you're just, you know, just kind of jumping in, we actually ordered a copy of the Gospel of John for you that has journaling pages in it. We want to make sure everybody who considers uh, this their church home, you're going to jump in on this study with us that you've got a copy of that journal so that you can follow along and, t- and take notes as well and kind of respond to what God's doing in you. If you haven't got a copy of those journals yet, they're in, they have them in the lobby after the service or you can grab one at the connections counter, but we want to make sure everybody gets one of those. We're almost to the end of John chapter one. So we've been working through it for a couple of weeks and now we take the last 11 verses of John chapter one and we see sort of uh, the, the writer here, the evangelist John, picking up uh, right where he left off last week. Last week we saw John the Baptist was standing with a couple of his disciples and it says that Jesus passed by and a couple of John the Baptist disciples left John the Baptist to go and follow Jesus, right? And Jesus turns around and he looks at them and he says, what are you seeking? Or essentially he looks at them and says, what is it you're after? What are you hungry for, right? What, what, are, you, what are you chasing? And they don't, they don't really respond with anything brilliant. They look at him and they go, well, we want to know where you're staying. Rabbi, where are you staying, right? And he says, come and see. There's this beautiful invitation to come and see. In essence, he meets them where they're at. He says, yeah, come on, I'll show you where I'm staying, but I want you to invite you to come to, to draw near to me and to have your eyes open to deeper truths even to the, than those. And now as we move into verses uh, 40 through 51, we're gonna see a continuation of this idea of seeing and discovering. In fact, if you're taking notes, you might wanna just look here in these first few verses and underline all the places where we see the word found. Right? The word found comes up again and again and again. It says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. You see, you see the, this notion of discovery, this idea of finding what they're looking for. Jesus has come and see, come on this journey in some ways of discovery. You know, even as we're talking about uh, Christmas Boulevard and walk through Bethlehem, I, uh, I got the opportunity to participate and walk through Bethlehem last year. I got to be a shepherd guide. So uh, in the months prior to Christmas, I grew my beard out a little bit longer. I got to wear a shepherd costume and kind of walk groups of people through that walk through Bethlehem experience. And it was, it was really fun. It was, I had to memorize some lines when it was really fun to do. If you haven't done anything like that, you should think about it. But on one night, I was walking this group through and we were leading groups of about 60 people. And there's a moment, if you did walk through Bethlehem last year, you'll remember there's a moment when, when we're leading the group past the census taker, right? Uh, And there's a Roman guard standing there. And right as you got sort of just to pass the Roman guard, the Roman guard would slam down his spear onto this platform and it made this huge boom sound. It always kind of scared and surprised the crowd. So I always just sort of anticipated like there's a shock coming here. You kind of wake them up. So I'm leading this group through and I'm like, come on, just let's move past the census taker. And the Roman guard slams down his spear. He goes, halt, boom. He makes this big, loud banging sound. And right at that moment, there's a lady who I'd never met before. She's standing next to me. She goes, Jesus Christ. And, uh, <laughs> and I, just like this, I went, that's exactly who we're seeking. Yes, come along on the journey. We will find him together, right? You know, and uh, 
I didn't, I didn't want her to feel weird. I'm pretty sure she peed, you know, and so it was like, I didn't, I didn't want to make that any worse for her. And so it was like, just sort of incorporated in. Yes, it's Jesus that we're seeking. Come and see, and let's see who we can find him together. And uh, this section is all about Jesus' invitation to draw near and open your eyes. And that's important. This last section here is all about view. It's all about vision. It's all about sight. Both what people see of Jesus and what Jesus himself sees. I just want to walk through it, but look for the places where people see and find, right? Where they see and discover, because it's all through here. It says, one of the two who heard John speak, verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So Andrew here is referred to as Simon Peter's brother because by the time that John the evangelist writes this book, Simon Peter is famous, right? He's a famous disciple of Jesus, so there's a a point of reference. You know, if you're a younger brother or a brother of somebody famous, it's kind of frustrating to always be like, oh, this is Andrew, he's Simon Peter's brother. But that's the way, in the Bible of all places, for goodness sakes, that happens here. It says, one of two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Look at verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Now there's a couple things I want you to see. If you have a pen, again, and if you've got a journaling Bible, circle the word first. He first found. The implication is that there is something catalytic in finding the Lord Jesus in that it moves you to want to invite others to come and see. That there is this movement in the life of Andrew, the, the brother of Simon, that begins with Simon but doesn't end there. That the fact that Andrew has met the Lord Jesus and has found the Lord Jesus that stirs something in him to want to go and tell the people that he knows and that he cares about. You know, the statistics will tell us that like 70% of all evangelism happens in the first year of people coming to Christ. Like when you first understand who Jesus is and your eyes are open to the truth, that there's this thing that bubbles up into you that, that you want to go and tell other people. And then over time, those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, we start to kind of get callous to that. And we start to kind of dial it back. But Andrew has found Jesus, and he wants to go and share that with his brother. The first person he goes to find is Simon. The first person. In a long succession of those he will reveal the truth to. He goes and he finds his brother Simon, and look at how he describes his experience. He says this to Simon, his brother. He says, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. I love that. I like that in, that in, John, in Andrew's testimony to Simon, here's what he says. He says, we found the Messiah. Come and see, we found the Messiah. That's interesting to me that he perceives himself as having found the Messiah, because if you've read John 1 with us over the last few weeks, what have we discovered? These guys didn't find the Messiah He found them. I love the fact that God finds us in such a way that it feels like a point of discovery for us. We feel like we've done something, right? It's like when our parents hid Easter eggs in our yard, but they're basically just sitting in the grass, right? You go out and and you're like, I found them, but like you'd have to be an idiot not that they're just sitting right there in the grass, right? God has drawn these men to himself in such a way that they perceive that they found him. It doesn't matter what your conversion story looks like. If you're the kind of person in the room today who met Jesus at an evangelistic crusade or you met him in a conversation in the back, back of your mom's station wagon or no matter where you met Jesus, it probably feels to you like in that moment when your eyes were opened and you realized that Jesus had come to the earth in the flesh 
that he came to take the sins of mankind, that he died on the cross on your behalf, shed his blood and was buried dead, but rose again and by his grace extends resurrection life, no matter who you are, when you think about the moment when you first understood that truth and believed it, the truth of the gospel, it probably feels to you like you discovered something in that moment, right? Like this is the day I discovered it. But the biblical reality is you didn't find him in that moment. He found you in that moment. That God found you in a way that feels like discovery. Andrew looks at Simon and he says, come and see. We found the Messiah, which means Christ. Look at verse 42. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him. Looked at him doesn't really do it. That, that translation doesn't quite do it uh, justice because the word that's translated looked there is only used twice in the Gospel of John. And, and it means to gaze with discernment, to gaze intently with discernment. So it isn't just that Jesus was like, oh yeah, there's Simon. It's that Jesus' gaze is fixed on Simon. And look at what he says to Simon. He looks at Simon and he says this. You were Simon the son of John, you shall be called Cephas. That's kind of an interesting way to introduce yourself to somebody, right? Can you imagine meeting somebody and they meet you for the first time and they look at you and they go, uh, your name is Darren, you shall be called Gary, right? And I'd be like, no, I won't. I'm never, that's never gonna happen. I'm never gonna be called that. It's just my mom picked, right? So she's the one who gets to decide. Jesus looks at Simon and he says, you're called Simon, but you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. It means the rock, What's happening there? Why, why is this the first introduction? Well, what we're understanding here is that Peter, as Simon, sees Jesus. Jesus sees Simon even better than, than Simon sees him. And when Jesus looks at Simon, he doesn't just see the man who's before him, the fisherman who will struggle with faith, who will struggle with dedication, who will not, sometimes become a little bit more braggy all right, than he should. Jesus doesn't just see the man in front of him. He sees who this man will be. He sees the now and he sees the next, right? That when God looks at us, and this is great news for you and I, that when he looks at us, he doesn't just see who we are this morning, but he sees who he is transforming us into, who we have the potential to become, where he's taking us. When God sees us, he sees our true name, right? There's a, there's a passage in Revelation chapter two that uh, it's part of the letter written to Pergamum that talks about the fact that for those who overcome, for those who are conquerors, those people, those conquerors will be given a white stone on which is written the secret name that no one else knows. It's kind of this really amazing mystery that there's a day coming when God will give us a white stone that has a secret name, God's secret name for us. That God sees more than just what's in front of him. What's in front of him. He sees the future. Because at this point in time, Simon is not a rock, right? In any sense of the word. In fact, we'll see in the other gospels, if you look at those, that there's another encounter where Peter's sitting in a boat with Jesus and he's not ready to follow Jesus at all. This is the first encounter, but it takes a second encounter before Peter decides to follow. Peter is not the rock in this story. But Jesus looks at him and sees not just who he is, but who he will be. I don't, I don't know about you, but as I was studying this this week, I spent quite a bit of time sort of meditating on and reflecting upon what, what is the name that Jesus would give to me? Is there a different name? Is there something else? Because I've had these moments in my life where new names were declared over me in some ways. You know what I mean? Like I remember when I first started a band, I just started the, I was in a band when I was in college and I started the band mostly just so that I could meet the Christian service requirement at my college and check off the box, you know? 
But there was a little guy, there was a guy who ran a coffee shop in Arizona, and at one point he called us to come and play at his coffee shop, and he said, hey, if, you're, if your band's gonna play at my shop, I don't want you to just entertain people, I want you to share the gospel with them. And he pulled me aside and he looked at me, and, he, and in some ways, when I remember the story, it felt like prophetically, this man looked at me and said, you think of yourself as a singer, but you will be an evangelist. And he spoke a prophetic thing over me that transferred me to a different way of even thinking about myself. He called me to something greater. There's another point in my life later where I had somebody look at me, and I've talked about this before, somebody look at me over coffee and say, you are called an evangelist, but you will be called a preacher, right? And at the time I was like, I don't know if that's gonna be me. But my, my life was transformed by prophetic moments where God said, this is who you are, and this is how you see yourself, but this is where we're headed. The reality is that no matter what your name is, no matter what your profession, no matter what stage of life you're in today, you are on a trajectory, you are on a journey, and God is calling you to something else, something greater still. And until they put my cold, dead body in the casket, right, until my days on this earth are done, there is still potential for me to continue to grow into new and other things that God might call me to. God doesn't just see who I am, he sees who I will be, who I can be. And we, as the family of God, have a really beautiful and brilliant opportunity to look into each other's life and speak some of these new names over each other, right? When we're sitting across a coffee table with people or in a a mentoring relationship or in a small group, when we get to know other people, there are these powerful moments where we can look into other people's eyes and say, I see who you are and I also see who you can be by the power of God at work within you. We should be taking those opportunities to speak new names into people's lives. Jesus certainly does that. He doesn't just see who Peter is, he sees who Peter will become. And that's good news for Peter because who Peter is isn't that awesome. It reminds me that God doesn't just love us when we clean ourselves up, right? He doesn't just love us when we change, when we can recite all the right answers. I think sometimes we feel like we gotta put on some sort of a facade in order to impress God so he will love us. That's not how it works. God doesn't love us when we change. God loves us so we'll change. The love of God meets us right where we are, no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done, meets us right where we are and it has a transformative and catalytic effect to transform us into who we can be. Does that make sense? Jesus looks at Cephas, and Cephas sees him. Excuse me, he looks at Simon. He looks at Simon, and he says, this is who you are, but this is who you will be. I love what Jesus sees in this text. I love the way Jesus sees Simon. But let's go on. We see something here about discovery and view. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. Now, Philip is from the same region. It says this here. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. This isn't a request. This isn't him going, hey, if you don't have anything better to do, you wanna come on a little trip, I'm gonna take a little road trip, you're welcome to tag along. There's an emphatic command here. So this is Jesus looking at Philip, and he says, let's go, follow me, right? There's a command. He says, follow me. Now, verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So he's from that same region where Peter and Andrew are from. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Couple things I want you to see. It's incredible to me that Jesus looks at Philip and says, follow me, and that the very next action of Philip in following Jesus is to call someone else to come and find him. 
You see, Jesus is a disciple maker. Jesus is someone who is inviting people to come and see. And so when he looks at someone and says, follow me, emphatically, says as a command, follow me, when he invites us to follow him, there's inherently built into that followership a command to live and act like Jesus, who was a disciple maker. Does that make sense? If the Jesus we're following is one who says to others, come and see, then our followership of him must also call for an invitation to others. I found Jesus, come and see him. Jesus says to Philip, follow me. Philip immediately turns to Nathanael and says, come with me and find the Messiah, right? Now he goes to Nathanael, and this is interesting. He goes to Nathanael and he says, uh, come and see the Messiah we found, right? This is verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. We talked a couple weeks ago about the fact that when the, um, when the Levites and the priests came to John the Baptist, they said, are you the prophet that Moses talked about? Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah, John the Baptist? No, 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 no. I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness. Now Philip comes to Nathanael and says, we have found, again, it already told us Jesus found Philip, but Philip's perception is, I found the Messiah. Philip turns to Nathanael and says, we found him who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. He's the one Moses talked about. He is the Messiah. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael's like, time out, right? Hold on, hold on. You found the one that's the fulfillment of the prophecy? You found the one that we've been waiting for? The one that was foretold? The one we've been praying for? That's awesome. But I have a, I have a concern about your description because the next thing you said is, Jesus of Nazareth, right? Look at, look at Nathanael's response. Philip says, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Wah, wah, wah. Nathanael goes, I, I'm happy you found the guy that was prophesied. I'm happy that you think you found the Messiah, but I'll tell you right now, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. The Messiah doesn't come from Nazareth. In fact, I can't think of anything good coming from Nazareth. Now, we know that uh, Nathanael is from Cana, and there was a little bit of a rivalry between Cana and Nazareth. So what we may be seeing, in all honesty, is some racism, right? We might be seeing a little, a little bit of, um, of a bias here. But we also might be seeing in Nathaniel a little bit of self-deprecation because Cana and Nazareth were sort of from this, they're kind of the same region in Galilee. So in some ways, Nathaniel might be speaking about himself and going, people from our part of the country aren't messiahs. You know what I'm talking about? We're not messiah material. So there may be a little self-deprecation. There may be a little bit of bias, certainly. It may also simply be Nathaniel's understanding of the prophecies because while the prophecies about the Messiah said that he would be a Nazarene, it didn't necessarily specify that he would be from Nazareth. It says he'd be from Bethlehem. Now, we know Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but that's not where he was living and where he was raised. So Nathaniel goes, ah, fulfillment of the prophecy, maybe, but uh, from Nazareth, does anything good come from Nazareth? Does anything good come from Nazareth? See his bias. We live in a world full of bias, don't we? Bias happens, by the way, whether, whether biblical bias that's happening in this, in this story, this narrative, or the biases we see in our world today, bias happens in every case because of distance and ignorance. Distance and ignorance. Think about it again. When we see bias rear its ugly head, hatred, racism, any of those things, it happens because of distance and ignorance. The way to deal with bias the way to deal with racism, the way to deal with that kind of nationalism and hatred is what? To draw near and become informed, right? And so what, what is it that Philip says? This is pretty cool. Nathaniel goes, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
And Philip, quoting Jesus, look back at the text, John chapter one, Nathanael verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see. What's Jesus' response to those men when, when Andrew and probably John said, we want to know where you're staying? What's the answer? Come and see. This, by the way, is the perfect response to any skepticism about the Lord Jesus, right? I think sometimes we think, well, I have to know all the right apologetic answers to every question somebody might ask, or I need to memorize a gospel outline, or I need to have gospel tracts to hand out on the street corners, or I need to, you know, whatever. The, the, the answer to any skepticism about the Lord Jesus, if you have friends or neighbors or family members who are like, I don't know about this Christianity thing. I don't, I don't know about Jesus rising from the dead and streets of gold and all that stuff. The answer, the best answer is come and see. Meet him. Meet him. The best answer to skepticism about Christ is come and see. But it, for the record, and kind of as a side note, but it's connected, the answer to any bias, wherever it's found, is always come and see. Draw near and learn, Right? Draw near and learn. If we draw near to the people that we have biases against, our biases will disappear. It's always distance and ignorance that creates that. So Nathaniel says, does anything good come from Nazareth? Philip's answer is perfect. He goes, come and see. So here's what happens. They go to see Jesus, right? Jesus, it says in verse 47, saw Nathaniel. There it is again. Jesus' view. Remember, he saw Simon. Now he's seeing Nathaniel. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. He says, truly I tell you, here comes an Israelite in whom there is no deceit or there is no guile, right? No deception. Now that, that statement might not mean much to you, but it would have meant a lot in the context. And even, even we'll see further in the story, Jesus looks at Nathanael and he says, this is an Israelite in who there's no deceit. Now, Israelite is a descendant or a son, a descendant of the man whose name was Israel, right? But Israel wasn't always his name. Israel's name was changed to Israel later in his life. He began his life with the name Jacob. And Jacob was a man who was defined by guile, defined by deceit, defined by scheming and machinations and lies and maneuvering, right? Jacob was a liar and a cheat. He was incredibly deceitful. In fact, that's like the defining characteristic of who Jacob was. And God transformed him. So in some ways, think about this. Jesus looks at Simon and he says, I see Simon, but I also see Cephas, the rock who will come, right? I see who you are and I see who you will be. Long before that, God had looked at Jacob, the liar and the deceiver, and he'd said, I see Jacob, but you will be Israel. It's just like God looking at Joseph, right? God looks at Joseph and says, I see the spoiled brat in his father's home, but you will become the second in all of Egypt and you will rescue your people from famine, right? God sees not only who he is, but who he will be. Now Jesus looks at Nathanael and he says, I see an Israelite, a descendant of the man Israel, in whom there is no deceit. So what's he saying? In essence, Jesus is saying, I see a descendant of Jacob in whom there is no Jacob, right? I see an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. Now, I don't know how you receive compliments. Uh, this is a pretty cool thing Jesus says about Nathaniel here, right? He looks at him and says, here comes a true Israelite in whom there is no guile or there is no deceit. And if you're like me, I tend to be deflective of compliments. Like, I'm not, I'm not super good at receiving that sort of thing. So if it had been me, I'd have been like, uh, I don't know about being a man in whom there's no deceit. Like, spend a little time with me and I'll prove to you I got some deceit, right? I, uh, I, I one time had a, um, I was speaking at a camp and the guy got up to introduce me 
and the introduction was like, our speaker this week is the funniest guy I've ever met. Everything he says is hilarious. No one has ever been funnier in the history of time. And, and I'm like, he just ruined my whole week, right? Because there is no way I'm going to be able to hit that bar. You know, like I'm going to get up on stage. The kids are waiting for Jerry Seinfeld and it's going to be disappointment through the rest of the week. And so I get up and I'm immediately having to go, well, he has a really low standard for humor. I don't know what to tell you. He, he thinks, you know, whatever. I, there was a time where um, when I was refing soccer, my wife was talking to uh, another family that was on my son's team and she was saying, have you met my husband? And the lady says, yeah, I met your husband. He's the one that has the, uh, he's the, one that has the nice calves, right? <laughs> and my wife goes, nope. <laughs> That's not him, right? Because even when I was refing soccer, that wasn't true, right? But it's, I, like, I just don't know what to do when I tend to, you know, somebody says something nice, I tend to go, ah, I don't know. I want you to see something about the character of Nathaniel that what Jesus says about him is true. There is no posturing, there is no deception, there is no guile or deceit. Jesus says, here's an Israelite in whom there is no guile or no deceit. And Nathaniel's response is, verse 48, how do you know me? What? Right? That would be like the guy introducing me and going, hey, our speaker this week is the funniest guy who ever lived. And me getting up on stage and going, you nailed it. I am that, right? Here's the guy with the shapely calves. You've seen him, right? That's me, right? Not so much. Nathaniel looks at Jesus and says, you just described me as an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? I love, I love the fact that he just owns it. That's, that's who I am. I am a man who's trying to live a life of integrity and honesty and purity, right? A true Israelite in whom there is no guile. He says, how do you know me? And look at Jesus' response. By the way, I want you to know there's a, there's a thing coming up here that is a bit of a mystery. It's an awesome mystery. It's a place where you and I have to do some seeing ourselves, where we have to do some discovering ourselves in the text. Here's what happens. Nathaniel says to Jesus, Jesus says, this is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Jesus answered in verse 48, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now that seems harmless enough, right? Jesus goes, oh, I know you because I saw you under a fig tree. Before you and Philip even had your conversation about me, I saw you under the fig tree. And you go, oh, okay, you, sp you spotted me from a distance. You were creeping on me while I was under a fig tree, whatever, right? Look at what happens, though. Jesus says to Nathaniel, before you had your conversation with Philip, you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I, I want you to look at Nathaniel's response, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel, right? Boom, it's like this huge explosive like faith moment, right? This moment of incredible belief. Nathanael says, how do you know me? Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And he's like, that's it, you're God, right? You are my teacher, you saw me under a fig tree. Even Jesus goes, you're impressed by that, right? Here's what we don't know. The text doesn't tell us why it has the kind of response in Nathaniel that it does, but I can tell you from my own life what I think is happening here. Jesus is sharing a very personal moment. He's declaring to Nathaniel, I saw you in a moment where nobody else saw you. I heard you and I know you because there was something that happened under the fig tree. And there's lots of speculation. By the way, all we can do is speculate. We can't, the text doesn't tell us. But what we see is that Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, and so we know something happened under the fig tree that created this explosion of faith in the life of Nathaniel when Jesus said, I saw you there. What was that? Well, it could be a lot of things. The fig tree was seen as a, as a symbol of the nation of Israel. 
And it was sort of commonly held that people would go out under a fig tree and they would pray for the Messiah to come. So is it possible that Nathanael was under the fig tree and he was praying for the Messiah to come but that nobody else heard those prayers? And when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree praying for the Messiah, that something clicks in Nathanael's head, it's, it's possible. But is it also possible, just thinking about my own experience, is it possible something else was happening under the fig tree? That maybe under the fig tree Nathanael was expressing anger at the delay of the arrival of the Messiah. That maybe he was frustrated about his circumstance. Maybe he'd been praying for the Messiah for a long time. Maybe he'd come back to the fig tree and said, God, where are you? We need you here. We need your deliverance. We need your help. Are you even paying attention? I've had moments like that. I've had moments where I look up at the stars and I go, can you see me? I need you. Where are you, right? Have you had moments like that? You probably have. Moments where we cry out to God and it feels like our prayers hit the ceiling and they bounce back at us. Moments where we feel lost and alone and unheard and like God is nowhere around. Maybe it was a moment like that for Nathaniel. Maybe it was a moment where he'd been crying out to God and saying, are you there? And so for Jesus to show up and go, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That would certainly be a catalytic moment for me. There have been moments in my life. I remember a moment in South Africa, right, of all places. I was at a vineyard in South Africa, and I was working at a church in Orange County, and, I, and my heart was troubled, and I didn't know why I was working there, why God had me in that place. It was a very difficult, heartbreaking season for me. And I remember standing in this vineyard and crying out to God, like, what do you want of me? Where am I supposed to go? What, what is this all about? Why is this so hard? And I got a phone call. While I'm standing in South Africa from a guy in Long Beach who said, hey, I don't know if you'd ever considered this, but we're interested in knowing if you'd want to come and serve at our church. And it was like Jesus said, you know when you're in the vineyard and you didn't think I saw you, you didn't think I was there, you didn't think I was paying attention? I heard you, I saw you. I have multiple moments in my life like that. You, you probably have moments like that too. I want to ask you this morning, what would it take this morning to drop you to your knees? What moment would Jesus have to say to you, hey, Darren, I saw you in the front seat of your car parked in the parking garage with tears running down your face. Hey, Darren, I saw you late last night after your kids all went to bed, stressed out about this or that. I saw you there. Hey, Mike. Hey, Sue. Hey, Larry. Hey, Tom, whatever. What would God say to you? How would he fill in the blank? Because each and every one of us have those moments, and sometimes they're moments of incredible faith, right? Sometimes there are moments of incredible loneliness and pain and lack of faith. But here's the reality. It doesn't matter what scenario you choose, whether it's a scenario of pain or a scenario of incredible faith. The reality is, whatever scenario you would pick, if you'd go, oh, well, I, 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 it would be meaningful to me if God said, I saw you at the bank last week when you realized that your account was empty. That'd be meaningful. Guess what? God saw you at the bank. He might not say it to you in an audible voice, but the reality is there is no situation that you have been in in the last week or the month or the last year. There is no situation ever in your life that God wasn't there with you in it. You see, as God is calling them to come and see, as he's calling us to come and see, one of the things that he wants us to see and know is that he sees us. Even when we think we're alone, even when we think our prayers aren't being heard, even when we think we've been abandoned and at a loss and we don't know what comes next, God is there with us. It doesn't matter what was happening under the fig tree. That's why it doesn't tell us. It's irrelevant. What's relevant is something was happening under the fig tree and God saw Nathaniel there. And he looked at Nathaniel and said, I knew you under the fig tree when you thought you were alone. 
And Nathanael's like, that's it, I'm in. You're the son of God, you're the king of Israel, let's go. Church, it doesn't matter where you've been and how alone you felt, God sees you and he's with you, he hears you, he knows. You're never alone. He wants you to come and see what he sees, and he sees you. Nathaniel has this incredible response, and Jesus says this in verse 50. Because I've said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? He goes, this is the thing, this is the moment I told you I saw you under a tree, and you're, you're amazed. He says, look, truly, truly, verse 51, no, actually in 50, he says, you will see greater things than these, right? You're amazed that I said I saw you under the fig tree? You ain't seen nothing yet, Right? He goes on to say in 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that might not make a ton of sense to you, but in light of what he said about, about Nathaniel being an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob, now he references a dream that Jacob had in Genesis 28. We don't have the time this morning to look at it, but that's your homework for later today. In Genesis 28, Jacob has a dream of a ladder, you might have heard that before, Jacob's ladder, right? And angels ascending and descending, a, a, a ladder that stretches from heaven to earth, and angels ascending and descending. Jesus, in John 1, looks at Nathaniel, he says, you're impressed that I saw you under a fig tree? Let me tell you what, you're gonna be impressed by what you see, and what you will see is me, the fulfillment of the dream that Jacob had. I think it's possible, just as one scenario, that Nathaniel was under the fig tree praying that he would not be like Jacob, but that he would be like Israel. I think he may have been under the fig tree going, I don't wanna be a man of deceit. I don't wanna be a man of guile. I wanna be a man of faith. So for Jesus to show up and say, I saw you under the fig tree, and you're gonna see what your, what your forefather Jacob only dreamed of seeing. I, Jesus says, am the latter. The thing that connects heaven to earth, the one that reconciles man to God, you're going to see that reconciliation occur, not in a dream, but in front of your eyes. We will create a way for man to commune with God once again, and that way is me, Jesus says. I love the fact that Jesus looks at Nathaniel and says, don't get too impressed with this one thing because there's greater things to come. You know what I think happens sometimes in our lives? I think sometimes when we have this incredible moment of, of explosive faith under a fig tree, we kind of just want to camp out under the fig tree. You know what I mean? We're like, something cool happened under this fig tree. I just want to stay here. And God looks at Nathaniel and he says, no, don't get too excited about the fig tree. There's greater things down, down the road. I think sometimes we just sort of want to camp out in some great spiritual moment that happened in the past and God would look at, look at us this morning like he looks at Nathaniel and say, say, you haven't seen anything yet. That's a great starting point, but it's just the beginning of a road of the miraculous and powerful reconciliation and healing and redemption I will do. Now listen, Jesus calls them to come and see and there is something really valuable about us about us you know, knowing that God sees us, knowing that God sees who we are and who we will be. There's something incredibly valuable about us discovering the truth that God sees us. But it isn't our understanding of what God sees of us that is transformative. At the end of the day, what's transformative is our view of God seeing us. Does that make sense? It's us seeing him seeing us. That's why Hebrews will be so clear, and we studied this at length, but Hebrews will be, be so clear to say, fix your eyes on Jesus. Remove any hindrance or obstacle. Remove any sin that would beset us, and let's look to the author and finisher of our faith. Let's consider him who took such abuse in Hebrews 12, it says. Consider him so that we can continue. Continue. 
in the things God has called us to. How do we do it? Not by understanding his view of us. That's helpful up to a point. But what is transformative in our life is our unencumbered view of him. Jesus says, come and see. Come and see the way I see you. Come and see the way I lead. Come and see the way I call. Come and see the invitation and replicate that. The reality for us this morning is that these men hadn't heard his sermon, right? They hadn't heard any of his preaching. They didn't know his plans. In fact, they they sort of assume his plans are different than they actually are. They're not following because they heard his teaching or they understood his plan. They're following him because of who he is. And that's why we follow as well. If you have questions about Jesus, the greatest answer for you is come and see. Come and see who he is and what he sees. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us a clear view of you. That we would know that when you look at us, you don't just see who we are today, but we see, you see who we, who we will become, who you're transforming us into. God, we know that when you see us, that you call us to follow you, and then that following requires us then to look at you in order to replicate what you're like. But that even in those quiet moments of pain and sorrow, the moments of doubt and fear, or the moments of incredible faith and courage and strength, that no matter what moment we find ourselves in, if we think we're by ourselves in it, we've made a mistake. Because you saw Nathaniel under the fig tree, and you see us as well. You see us, and you hear us, and you know us. And while your view of us is moving, God, we pray that you would give us a clearer and clearer view of you, that we might be transformed. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.